Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Camilla Webster, and joining me today is Charlotte Jacobs, the author of Jonas Salk, A Life, and featured in the book is Kevin Kimberlin, and we're so happy to have you here. I read this book. I couldn't put it down. Tell me why you chose to take on a subject, an American hero in medicine. Well, Jonas Salk made two of the major contributions uh, to medicine that benefit all of us today. He made the first polio vaccine, and less well-known, he co-developed the first effective influenza vaccine. And his tale is actually a fascinating medical tale that deserved to be written. I felt you bought a really deep understanding to his story as you're a professor of medicine yourself. And it was incredibly exciting to monitor Dr. Salk's journey from a little boy (laughs) in New York to someone who became this massive public figure. Do you want to talk a little bit about Dr. Salk's early life and how that influenced his choices to go on a journey to save so many lives? Yes, thank you. Well, Jonas was born in East Harlem in 1914. He was born into a Russian immigrant society. His mother, who was a very tough taskmaster, told him that he was born with a call and that amniotic membrane covering his face, and that that meant that he was destined for greatness. And he believed her, which was pretty unlikely for this small boy who was very shy and who was bright but not brilliant. But he used to pray every day that someday he would do something great for mankind. People don't talk as often about Salk's contribution to the development of the flu vaccine as they do to polio. But I would love you to set the scene for us of this time in history of America, what it was like to combat disease and what doctors and scientists were up against in this period. Jonas Salk grew up in New York City and in uh, 1916, when he was two years old, there was a major epidemic of polio in New York City that then spread across the United States and about 27,000 people contracted polio, mostly children, and it was pretty devastating. And no one knew what caused polio, no one knew how it spread. The uh, health commissioner did all kinds of things to try to prevent it from spreading, such as destroying all the cats in the city because they thought cats uh, caused polio. Then two years later, during World War One, as World War One was unfolding, in 1918, a major influenza epidemic hit New York City, then spread across the world. It, it was the most devastating influenza influenza pandemic really ever, and millions and millions of people died across the world. And it was mostly young men, interestingly, or young women. It was not the elderly uh, that we usually think of, and it would actually destroy their lungs. So Jonas Salk had recollections when he was a young child of standing on the sidewalk and seeing carts go by just stacked high uh, with coffins. Those kind of images just became embedded in his soul, and he, he knew that he wanted to spend his life combating disease. Then he went to work with Francis on the flu vaccine? Yes, so he was just finishing his residency training at Mount Sinai Hospital. He was starting to look for different research jobs, and there actually weren't very many available. And he remembered that Thomas Francis, he had done research on influenza when he was in medical school. So he wrote to Francis, and Francis eventually said, well, you can come here and work with me, but uh, you won't have any salary. And then Pearl Harbor was bombed. And Jonas Salk, as 
did everyone, had these terrible recollections, he just from reading, of course, because he, he wasn't really, he was a child then, of the fact that as many young men almost died from influenza as died in the, in the war, mm. uh, which is incredible. So he finished his internship and rushed to work with Francis. While Francis was going around the world trying to investigate influenza epidemics, uh, Salk, uh, who had helped him make the vaccine, was testing it in Eloise Hospital for the Insane and, and uh, Ypsilanti Hospital, and then tested it in the troops and found that it reduced the incidence of influenza by 90%. But Thomas Francis was the senior person. Salk was very, very young, and Francis got most of the accolades, which is why most people don't know that Jonas Salk was involved. The reason I wanted you to tell us that story is because um, there's a business story in there, even within the academia. If Salk chose to break free, right, and go to Pittsburgh and use less resources to accomplish more to eventually get him on the road to developing a polio vaccine down the line. Well, so that's an interesting story. He had an idea of making a universal vaccine. Mm -hmm. He was going to add mineral oil to the vaccine and then be able to put lots of different types of influenza on a vaccine. And he was blocked by the senior scientists who thought that mineral oil would cause cancer and some other things. And so he was really stifled by Francis. So he took a job at the University of Pittsburgh where he could have his own lab and started to work on this. In 1940, 47, uh, Harry Weaver, who was the director of research for the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, kind of lured him into the field of polio. They needed someone to help them find out the number of different types of polio virus. Mm. Well, Salk thought, okay, well, that's a pretty easy job. I'll get all this money, and I can use that to supplement my influenza research. So he still was very geared toward doing influenza research. And as time went on, he actually just developed this passion, this obsession with polio, and his influenza work went by the wayside. C-Suite Radio. From your perspective, tell us about his groundbreaking work in polio. So everyone at that time, all the senior scientists, the senior polio scientists, believed that the only way that you could make a vaccine was to use a live virus, that that would give you lifetime protection, as had been the case, for example, in smallpox. And Jonas Salk, the most junior person, really felt that you could kill a virus and still get immunity and have a safer vaccine. So he believed that. Uh, secondly, he didn't believe that you had to answer every single biological question about polio before you could make a vaccine. Every year he saw more and more children dying uh, from this terrible, terrible disease. And so he, in a sense, made his vaccine behind the backs of all the senior scientists and tested it in secret, but supported by Basil O'Connor, who was the director of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And so when his vaccine was chosen to be tested by the March of Dimes, the senior scientists were, you know, there was an outcry, really. He never liked confrontation. He was a very quiet, gentle, lovely, lovely man. But he knew how to maneuver around blockades. He learned that skill very early on with his mother and, you know, continuing to smile and be as gentle as possible. He was a little bit of a, of a renegade in that mm. regard. Tell us one of the darker insights you began to, to learn. Well, I think the he had two very major struggles. One, he struggled with his celebrity, which I describe as kind of like an albatross around his neck. But the one that really surprised me was his struggle with the scientific community. Mm. While the public was rushing to honor their hero, while heads of states around the world were giving him awards, the scientific community was ominously silent. Mm. I mean, he received 10,000 letters and telegrams, and I read through many of those, and there were very, very few from a scientist. So 
what was the matter with all that? Well, they said that there was a lot of hoopla. They called the announcement day a circus. They blamed him, even though he had nothing to do with the planning of it. They said that he grabbed the limelight and he didn't feature other people whose work had come before his. Well, he had tried to, but the media made him the icon for the yes. polio story. And people didn't want to hear about John Enders or Dorothy Horseman. Who were they? They wanted to know about Jonas Salk. He was their hero. Behind all this, you know, underneath all this, was this young scientist who wasn't a member of a senior, you know, scientific mm -hmm. community who had made this vaccine behind their backs and now had become a national hero. But a major other one was that he reached out to the public in ways few physician scientists, maybe with the exception of Pasteur, ever mm -hmm. had. Mm -hmm. He would, he gave interviews to Parent Magazine, Good Housekeeping. He went on television and showed the public how he made a vaccine using a wearing blender. I mean, the walls of academia are high. Division between academic medicine and the public, particularly mm -hmm. at that point in time. And he had crossed that wall. Mm -hmm. He felt that the public had supported him. They had paid for the research. They deserved to know. They ran the trial. Yes. They deserve to be listened to and responded to. Well, the scientific community thought that that was a lot of kind of hogwash, that he was just trying to grab the limelight. And then finally, I think, as one of his friends said, don't discount envy. Envy is fierce in the world of science. So they were pretty brutal to him. Yes. He did not win a Nobel Prize, even though nominated uh, several times. He was not elected into the National Academy of Sciences, which is probably the most egregious thing. Yes. And some of them described his work as, oh, kitchen chemistry, you could go into the kitchen and do that, or liken what he did to uh, a director of product development at a pharmaceutical mm -hmm. company. Even later in life, as, as we'll talk about later at the Salk Institute, he was very undermined by mm -hmm. the scientific community. Now, Maybe he deserved some of that because he was such a celebrity, but he didn't seek that himself. I wanted to bring in Kevin, who was a friend of Jonas Salk and also a business partner and an incredible entrepreneur today. Jonas Salk and his work is one of many of your pieces of work. You feature Kevin in the book. Would you like to introduce yes. him? Yes. So there were many characters in this book. Kevin actually was one of my favorites, who I just found by happenstance when I uh, saw letters about him in the, in the archives. 1984, Jonas Salk was forced to close the door to his laboratory. His life as a scientist had ended. He was 70 years old. That same week, the public health officials closed down the bathhouses in San Francisco. Uh, at that point, there were 11,000 cases of AIDS. Now, the public really didn't care that much. This is a disease of gays. There wasn't, even the scientific community wasn't rushing to try to find a solution to that. Well, Jonas Salk was now, had the life of a statesman and writing and that didn't satisfy him very much. He was a man of action. Mm -hmm. And so when he saw all these young men dying of this mysterious disease, I could just see him put on his armor and get on his mm -hmm. steed and charge into the AIDS arena. But at that point in time, the, the public didn't care that mm -hmm. much, nope. really, to be honest. Jonas Salk was kind of jeered by many in the scientific community. Oh, here's an old man trying to regain his glory. But Jonas, as always, had his focus his eyes on doing something for AIDS. And so he designed what he called a treatment vaccine mm -hmm. that would delay the time between infection with HIV and development of full-blown mm -hmm. AIDS. He started working uh, with some people at UC Davis, but that work was going pretty slow and he was getting very frustrated, getting bogged down in politics again. And suddenly he received this call from a 33-year-old 
man mm -hmm. named Kevin Kimberlin, he'd never heard of him, who was an entrepreneur talking about starting a company. And Jonas was really, you know, wary. He had only done things through an academic community. I think he probably sensed very early on that the two of them had some things in common. It became clear that Kevin was an idealist, just like Jonas. It was clear that he was passionate, just like Jonas. And it was clear that he was very tenacious, just like Jonas, because Kevin had been approaching many, many people, many scientists about the AIDS problem and mm. kind of getting nowhere. And so the two of them started immune response. Kevin, I'm going to embarrass him. I think Ke Kevin is one of my heroes because he had a major impact on the end of Jonas Salk's life. Now, mm -hmm. Jonas Salk is now in his 70s. He wants to make that last major contribution before he dies. Mm -hmm. Everybody's just kind of, you know, passing him up. And Kevin starts in. Uh, my relationship with Dr. Salk started when, as Charlotte mentioned, I was single living in New York City. It was the early 80s. And it wasn't just the public that didn't seem to care too much about HIV. Uh, the federal government didn't seem to care. The pharmaceutical companies didn't seem to understand. Ronald Reagan wanted nothing to do with this problem of, of the gays. And, and so I, I saw a need. I saw a big problem. And so I started researching the state of vaccine development mm -hmm. at that point in time. And it was really a backwater of the medical industry for a lot of reasons, um, just not a lot of research. And this was at the very beginning of sort of the biotechnology revolution with all kinds of new tools and technology. So I said, I've got to do something if I can. I knew nothing about immunology or vaccines. And so I did a lot of research studying various articles. And I was at the Academy of Medicine library digging into a microbiology journal. And there was a little notice in one of the journals about the 30th uh, anniversary of the polio field trial. And the article had a picture of Jonas Salk accepting some kind of award there. And the picture just seemed to come alive to me. It seemed like Jonas was saying, you know, call me. That's awesome. So I thought, wow, well, okay. <laughs> uh, so I did. I, I called. He was very easy to locate because, you know, he'd started the Salk Institute. So I would call, and uh, as Charlotte mentioned, he had no idea who I was. And uh, so I'd leave, you know, various messages. After several weeks of, you know, getting no response, I was in Los Angeles in a hotel, and I was taking a shower. And it's one of those hotel rooms where you have the phone outside the shower in case there's some kind of an emergency. <laughs> so uh, the phone rings while I'm taking my shower, and so I thought it must be something important. So I reached out of the shower, grabbed the phone, and on the line, Jonas Salk, returning your phone call. <laughs> so I am stark naked, and I've tried to reach this uh, you know, world-famous scientist for so long, I decided I'm not going to say, can I call you back after I've dried off? And I made my appeal, my impassioned appeal to Dr. Salk about what I saw the need of our time was. And it, and it was more than HIV. You know, there, there were hundreds of millions of people around the world, primarily children, that die every year of vaccine-preventable diseases. Mm -hmm. My dream was to set up a next-generation vaccine company. Mm -hmm. So that was the that was the pitch I was giving Dr. Salk in the, in the bathroom. He must have detected some kind of, you know, sense of importance or urgency. Yes. And uh, it happened to be the right time, I guess, in his life. I had no idea at the time. So he agreed to, to meet with me at his house. And I was there three days later in San Diego. And, and that was the beginning of what became a wonderful friendship. But by January of 1987, 
he was ready. We started the Immune Response Corporation together. Amazing. Now, there's a huge gap between research and starting a corporation, mm -hmm. and this is the C-suite book club, mm -hmm. where we try and bridge all of that together because every business story is a human story. Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons of starting the Immune Corporation and really how you bridge that gap? You had to bridge the intimate human relationship between you mm -hmm. two, and how did you move forward from there? Well, I, I guess the, the major challenge was getting the most famous scientists in the world to uh, team up with <laughs> With you, I think it was basically the urgency of the of the issue and the problem that that got him to say yes. But in terms of building um, other relationships that were very important to the starting of the company, you just you network. I'd spoken at a, a healthcare conference and met a fellow named Rob Cawthorn, who was uh, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Roar. And I, uh, he just left uh, running Biogen, which is one of the big biotechnology companies. So I asked him if he'd join the board of this two-person startup. <laughs> and I was very, uh, very surprised when he said, if you're involved, I'm in. That, that turned out to be an amazing coincidence because Rob Cawthorn, within a couple of years, was the CEO of a company called Rome Polonc Roar, mm. which Rome Polonc owned the Pasteur Institute and the Institute Maria. Wow. We ended up setting up a joint venture between Pasteur and Institute Maria and and our company, the Immune Response Corporation. And so if, if I hadn't made that inquiry and asked him to, to join this little startup, it never would have happened. As it turns out, that was very important to not only the Immune Response Corporation, but I think subsequently to the ultimate vindication of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine as well. Absolutely. And finally, give me a sense of the impact on the public from your work with Salk. My sense was that he was... He was not happy, the, his vaccine being, his polio vaccine being sort of phased out in the United States. He was very concerned about the fact that in, in, the, in this country for 15 or 20 years, just about the only way you got polio was from the live polio vaccine that had replaced his vaccine, and that really bothered him. And so I, I think one of the things that, that came about was once we started doing serious clinical work and we started testing our AIDS vaccine on, on hundreds of people, ended up being thousands. The scientific opposition to the AIDS vaccine and also the support by the, the press, the media always seemed to love Jonas and they were very interested in his way of explaining complex things you know, that the lay people, you know, lay readers could, could get. So he got increasingly a positive support from the media mm -hmm. for the AIDS vaccine that we were doing. And I think that translated into a change of sort of tone amongst the uh, certainly not the whole scientific community, but, but people like Bob Gallo, who did come around and sort of change his perspective and, and was much more open-minded as other people, which ultimately I think had an impact on the uh, revitalization of the salt polio vaccine, which uh, is now today the, um, the only vaccine you can get in the United States. So it ended up having a positive impact. Amazing. You knew him personally. You painted a wonderful picture of what he was like in the book. Leave us with something to remember. Uh, one conversation that we had that I think is, is a message for all of us, and that has to do with something that Charlotte mentioned a few minutes ago, which is uh, focus. I am always looking for new ideas and new technologies, and I looked at Jonas as sort of like perhaps a, a scientific uh, ad advisor and a, and a veteran of, of 
of, of some things that I would, I would come across. And to Jonas, these were all distractions from the main thrust of what we were trying to do. For, for me, it was diversification. For yes. him, it was a distraction. He knew exactly what he was doing and what he wanted to have accomplished, and I wasn't quite so sure. <laughs> so I, I brought in one particular approach that I was excited about, and I said, isn't this fascinating? And Jonas sat back in his chair, and he said, young man, you will find that everything in God's green earth is fascinating if you look at it intently enough. The important thing is what you allow yourself to be fascinated by. Focus. Focus on things that really matter. That statement hit me so hard. I mean, it was like you know a jet blast because it encapsulated everything that true heroes live by, which mm. is you, you can't get distracted, you can't get dissuaded, you really have to focus on things that really, really are going to change whatever field or whatever area you're in. So that, that's something I wanted to share and uh, it was a powerful message that I think we can all use because especially in this day and age when we have, I think, a, a mass ADD problem, yes. you know, a cultural ADD because of all the uh, distractions, of mobile phone, the internet, and all the social things that are going on, it is increasingly hard to focus on things that really, really matter. So I, I love that message from Jonas. You've written an incredible biography. What would you like the reader to take away from the book? Well. Jonas Salk was a very human man. He wasn't perfect, but he was a hero. And in this day and age, we need heroes. We need people who put the world and other human beings first, who have a goal. And uh, the reader can see how someone can go through all the struggles, the highs, the lows, but in the end, focus on what's important, and that's helping humanity. Thank you for joining us, Charlotte Jacobs and Kevin Kimberlin. What a pleasure. And if you'd like to know more about getting the book, you can go to csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. And the book is Jonas Salk, A Life by Charlotte Jacobs. Like what you just heard, visit c-sweetradio.com. C-Sweet Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.